Welcome to episode 31 of the Therapy Explained podcast. My guest today is Dr. Art O'Malley. Art has practiced as a medical doctor since 1990 and as a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist from 2004 until 2015 for the NHS. He's currently head of clinical services with the Eli Centre, based at offices in Enniskillen and Market Hill in Northern Ireland. Art speaks to me about sensory motor focused EMDR, which integrates two well established therapeutic approaches in sensory motor psychotherapy and EMDR. Art is particularly interested in the importance of addressing how trauma is stored in the body and the necessity to take a body-based approach in addressing this. Art has recently completed a two-day workshop on sensory motor-focused EMDR, which will be available online soon. To find out more, visit www.artomalley.com. Hi Art, thanks for joining me today. Nice to meet you, James, and thanks for inviting me on to your podcast. Thanks for coming. Today we're going to talk about uh, sensory motor focused EMDR. Do you want to maybe get us started by giving us an introduction into what that is? Okay, I originally trained as an EMDR therapist back <clears throat> in the early 2000s. And I found <clears throat> that EMDR on its own didn't really focus enough on the impact of trauma on the body in particular. And I was always interested in finding ways to <clears throat> make up that difference. So at a conference in 2007, I was introduced to sensory motor psychotherapy by a, a doctor, Frank Corrigan, and he suggested that it would be very helpful to my EMDR practice if I trained in the initial level one in sensory motor psychotherapy. So that took place in Lincoln, um, over four weekends and I was very impressed by the comprehensiveness of this training and the practical elements to it as well. So it was 12 days over four weekends, roughly three weekends apart with a lot of work done in between that and I still have the workbook and all of the slides involved in that. It took place from um, round about September 2008 to <clears throat> June 2009. And what I got from that was a very good understanding of how the physical body stores information and that it needs to be titrated into the conscious mind in such a way that EMDR and more cognitive-based focused therapies like trauma-focused CBT and mindfulness-based CBT and DBT can actually effectively deal with the underlying trauma. Because what we know about trauma memories is that they're very different to normal memories. They're, if you like, burnt into the brain at a limbic level and they're not actively, consciously um, understood or rec recalled by our cognitive system. So <clears throat> when I found the link that sensory motor psychotherapy provided, which was a bottom-up approach, I find that this was very compatible with CBT and EMDR, which were bottom-down, or sorry, top-down approaches. So that <clears throat> led me to publish this book, which I'll just show you here to show you. It's called The Art of Bart. And that was, for me, a combination of EMDR, bilateral affective 
bilateral processing using MDR. The affective component was the sensory motor side and reprocessing of thoughts was the CBT element. So I introduced bilateral affective reprocessing of thoughts as a dynamic model for psychotherapy, integrating these these modalities. And I found that this really changed my practice to become much more aware of where the physical distress was stored in the body. And I gained a lot of my clinical and practical experience working with mothers who had been admitted to the psychiatric ward in Halton Hospital with psychosis, with severe depression and often there was a background of trauma there and I worked with a psychodynamic therapist Dr Sheena Pollitt who was the consultant in charge of those patients and I worked with a nurse practitioner in maternal mental health Thelma Osborne who worked within the PCT where there was postnatal depression and I worked Although I was a child and adolescent consultant psychiatrist, I worked as the trauma therapist in that setting. And for one day a week, we worked with these mothers and discovered that until the traumas had been dealt with, they couldn't have relationships with their own children. So we integrated that approach with what was called Watch, Wait and Wonder, which was a psychodynamic approach where the mothers and children were designed to encourage their training to and interaction with their children to go from an insecure attachment to a secure attachment. So that, for from 2008 to about 2012, gave me a great insight into how you could work with the most disturbed people who were in an inpatient unit in a hospital and get them to the point where they could start to relate both better to themselves in terms of their own childhood trauma and that could then encourage a better, more secure relationship with their own children. And it was designed traditionally for children under five but we optimised it for children under 12. That then led me to... If I could just pause you for a second, Art, just to go back um, a little bit. And so if we're kind of thinking about, you mentioned there at the start uh, that... uh, um, top-down versus bottom-up approaches and just to kind of elaborate I guess maybe I can elaborate more on the top-down approach and maybe if you want to elaborate on the bottom-up approaches the top-down approach is you might think of us of thinking like CBT is very much a top-down approach for the most part we're trying to well the cognitive side of CBT is like that maybe something like exposure therapy a little bit more bottom-up because it's more body-based rather than um, thought-based whereas but EMDR I guess does have uh, a reasonable amount, amount of body in it if you're thinking of the three channels that you look to process through the the cognitions the emotions and the the, the body and um, maybe if you just if, to ask a little bit around what deficits do you feel like that EMDR has that um, sensory motor uh, psychotherapy helps to um, fulfill yeah so <clears throat> so yeah, so where I think it, it misses out is they will say in the EMDR, um, where do you notice that in your body as if it's a single entity? Whereas what I discovered in that clinic that I was working in, I used the recent trauma event protocol model of Elan Shapiro, which allows for continuous bilateral stimulation in whatever modality. And you find out where is the distress in the body, and it could be anywhere from the head to the toe, but classically it'll start off at a gut level in the terms of a feeling of severe tension, a a physical knot twisting or a heavy weight, for example. 
And what I discovered was that this was the information stored in a somatic capacity, in a muscle tension capacity, and it didn't fit easily into a model of um, thoughts, images, cognitions, emotions or sensations that you would cluster in a processing session and reprocess under the EMDR model because what you've got is physical sensations, muscle tensions and actions that are embodied in the muscle and reflexes that happened at the time of the trauma. Now this is particularly what I deal with a lot of the time now. Military trauma, people that have been blown up, that have been exposed to bombs, that have been shot, that are under life-threatening experiences. And there, the physical element of that impedes them even speaking about the trauma, because what you have is speechless terror in those situations. So the the shutdown of the cognitive aspects of the brain, the Broca's area, the, the receptive Wernicke's area, is so dramatic that the body has to channel all its energy, all its blood flow to keep the person alive in terms of their heart function, their lung function, their gut function. So in terms of trauma, if the person still feels their survival is threatened, as they often do, they will act as if they're under that threat. So their gut is churning, their heart is racing, they're breathing very rapidly. So what you need to do is essentially, and I think this applies to all therapies, identify if they're in the hyper-aroused state what I call the rapids, or if they're in the shutdown state, which I call frozen in terror. And if they're in either of those states, then they can oscillate between the two. They're not in the window of tolerance where they have access to those processing. So wherever state they're in when you see them first, by stabilising them, bringing that information and distilling it into their conscious awareness, then you can bring it from the body into the cognitive arena. But what I noticed was, and how my approach is different, I use the tactile units, which I've got from America through the Neurotech company, and I find them much better than the EMDR Equipment Europe version, which often break down. They are so powerful that they're put on the area of physical distress in the body, and they're held there until there is an activation of that physical distress. And typically it moves from the gut brain, uh, neurological architecture, to the heart brain or to the cognitive brain or maybe experienced by a lump in the throat. So what you're building up is a somatic map of the territory of the traumatic information and story, which will be different for every person because it will be some of the stories will and the traumas will be more pronounced in mm-hmm. er, certain areas than others. So, so, so just to go so back, sorry you're to inter- building, inter- yeah, yeah, interrupt there, yeah, Art. So just on. to um, yeah. clarify, so I guess the deficit with EMDR is it places a lot more emphasis on um, so you mentioned earlier what you call tices in EMDR, so the triggers, images, cognitions, emotions and sensations. And if you're assessing someone at EMDR, you think about, well, how does it present in the present? How does this problem come up in the present? And they would be five of the factors you'd be looking for. But sometimes it can be very um, sensation, so somatic heavy. And that's where mm-hmm, those mm-hmm. tices mightn't capture it. So <clears throat> and, and that's what sensory motor. Uh, uh, maybe that's 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 a hundred percent correct. And where I would emphasise, and one of my particular interests is pre-verbal trauma, and pre-verbal trauma you might roughly state is anyone 
typically if you ask them their earliest memories, they don't have much before the age of six or seven because the cognitive map and the flexibility to go from concrete thinking to abstract thinking, which is around 12, hasn't really formed. So using the narrative approach that we do in child and adolescent EMDR, we are aiming to recreate that narrative at a cognitive level. But before that, you need to be aware of what the sensory issues are, which may be from two, three, or even in utero. And those can only be accessed through the mother's experience of the pregnancy that has been transmitted in terms of stress and cortisol and trauma to the infant and the the baby in utero, or in the early years of insecure development as a result of early abuse and developmental neglect. So that is a crucial area that EMDR basically skates over and there's been very little research done as to how EMDR can pick up this sensory information, whereas the way I have tracked it back allows the sensory information to emerge into the conscious awareness. And then you use lots of little techniques and imaginary and visualisation approaches to help that adult manage that early childhood trauma. What, what I've added to this whole approach now recently is using a light that I have, which actually, um, when I ask the person how they're feeling, I'll typically get them to say, what's the colour that represents that depressed or heavy feeling? And it'll be black or grey or brown, let's say, at a gut level. And then I'll say to them, it's a sort of like a light stream. What light would you imagine Uh, you could apply to that somatic sensation which would activate it and be associated with a more positive feeling. So this light physically in my hand I can adjust the frequency, the colour, the intensity and the vibration and then they hold that along with the tactile units at next to where the physical distress is and that acts as another form of bilateral stimulation. In fact it's, it's, it's not even bilateral stimulation, it's it's radiation uh, frequency stimulation. And I've been doing this for the last number of months and found it a very powerful um, way of getting people to recover this distress. And it's not happening through the cognitive frame, it's happening through what we call the electromagnetic frequency of light uh, conduction through the nerve synapses that we know happen at the speed of light. So it's a whole new way of bringing that dynamic quality of resolution of trauma through light into the trauma world, which I think is quite exciting. And um, that also adds to, (coughs) added to that, I've done training in what's called deep brain reorienting. And this was developed over the last 20 years by Frank Corrigan. And its training is done in two parts over six months a day each. And what you learn from that is how to activate. It's almost like ultra slow motion EMDR. You learn to activate where the physical tension is in the brainstem or in the body related to the trauma. You physically tap that and activate that and release it. And then you can do your more normal reprocessing. So we've talked about how EMDR, CBT and those other approaches are cognitive primarily. Sensory motor is very much looking at the physical, peripheral, nervous system and sensory input. And then the deep brain reorienting is really in the middle where the blockages occur at the brainstem level. And what I've added to that with this light approach is the quantum field of psychotherapy, which is interacting and bringing all that is past, all that is 
in the future into the present moment through the quantum field of really the theory of quantum physics that was developed by Ernest Rossi <coughs> over his many years of working with Milton Erickson in the field of hypnotherapy. If I could just ask a couple of questions there, um, Art, because I guess there's lots coming up and lots that uh, I don't really understand. So just to kind of slow it down and pick one of those things, just to kind of elaborate on them, um, maybe the, okay. the idea of um, the that, I guess, some trauma is... As you say, it's not so clear um, what it's rooted in. Like, it might be clearer if someone's having intrusive thoughts around something or a very specific belief um, or even maybe emotions. But uh, mm-hmm. a physical mm-hmm. sensation can seem maybe very vague, maybe hard to figure out what that's, what that's linked to. Mm-hmm. So how would someone mm-hmm. know if what they're feeling is rooted in a trauma versus another uh, reason for it and how would they find out what trauma that's rooted in yeah I, I think that's a very perceptive question and I'd take people back to the diagnosis of depression and we now diagnose depression as mild moderate or severe and when you get to severe depression with somatic syndrome you have a constellation of symptoms that are 50% psychological that we would recognise, loss of interest, suicidal ideation, um, and so on. But you have another 50% that are somatic, which relate to heaviness, constipation, uh, physical uh, Poor concentration, low energy. Yeah, low energy, yeah. So there's a very strong mix of symptoms. And we now understand that stress and trauma actually cause inflammation in the different organs of the body wherever you may have a a, a genetic propensity for for example my dad had a history of ulcers so when he was under stress he would uh, need treatment for his ulcer but that was very much driven by the psychological pressures that he was under but was manifesting in a physical symptom so i don't see any distinction necessarily between physical and psychological other than there are different manifestations of a similar illness so for example a good example would be what we call non-epileptic attack disorder where you have somebody who suddenly collapses and I had a patient today who I've seen who worked in uh, served uh, for the UN in the blue helmets in the Balkans and I saw him for many terrible incidences that he witnessed and what you would call moral injury which is a whole other topic in itself and he's just started to relapse and wants to see me again. And uh, a lot of his symptoms were physical and a lot of them were psychological. So sometimes you don't know, but if I tend to build a map in my mind as to what one or the other could be, and I'll have a hypothesis and I'll work out, could this be, say, a physical injury that's related to, for example, a fracture that the person might have in a car accident? Or is it is it a... Uh, um, physical manifestation of the psychological trauma but really we need to be much less concerned about what is which element is is which when really the purpose is about reducing the trauma and the traumatic stress symptoms and then seeing what else is left 
um, after that has been done. Typically, I describe it like you come into my office and you're weighed down as if a rock and a boulder is you're carrying it on your shoulders like Atlas, who's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. And it's like I said to them, you came in with a rucksack and were chipping away and letting go of some of those stress each time the session happens, which is a 90 to 120 minute uh, intense sensory motor focused EMDR session. By the end of that, they have literally released some of that stress and trauma that will have both a physical and a psychological and an emotional and a neurological impact. And they'll be, they typically say to me, what do you notice is different? What's your new perspective? And they'll just say, I feel lighter. I feel more, I feel physically different. And that's how you want them to be going out, having a positive experience and wanting to come back in again. And with that, uh, with that release art, what I gather is it's it's like EMDR. So, the is it like the AIP model, the adaptive information processing? Yeah, yeah. So, so bilateral so stimulation. It, it's very, 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 very similar to that. Why and why I've adapted it over the years is I have found that when I worked with a eighteen-year-old who was. Um, interested in becoming a cadet but was terrified of camping because he had um, nocturnal enuresis that couldn't be treated through the medical route. I started working with him and using somatic interweaves. He was a rugby player and he wanted to score a try so we were imagining how he would get aware of the link between his bladder and the need to go to the toilet and waking himself up at night. And he was focusing and imagining doing this and he was holding on to the tactile units at the same time and uh, I had headphones on as well both providing uh, dual attention or bilateral stimulation and what I noticed was in tandem with the tactile uh, uh, frequency his eyelids you could clearly see the eyes moving um, backwards and forwards so that struck me as a very interesting observation and I sought to find out what was the mechanism behind that and I discovered that the peripheral stimulation of the tactile units activates three cranial nerves the trochlear the abducens which is third and fourth and um, the trochlear motor nerve three four and six are the nerves in the cranial that activate all the muscle movements of the eye, lateral rectus, superior oblique, and all the other eye movements. So when you provide a stimulus to the cranial nerves in the brainstem at the level of the superior colliculus, what that does is it sends a signal to those nerves to move the eyes. As then happens, you generate what are called pontine geniculate occipital REM waves which mimic the REM waves of sleep. So what I discovered was those two parallel forms of stimulation bring in the eye movements in a very natural way. So I then discovered that the most effective way of triggering this was to activate the tactile, the auditory stimulus at the level of the mastoid process, which is next to where the cerebellum is behind the ear. And it had the added advantages of me being able to interact with the person and talk to them. And 
over the last 10 years I've experimented and I've taught people this and they've all reported the same effect that you don't need to move the eyes manually because this will naturally cause any relevant eye movement to happen. Now lots of people get good effects by just doing eye movements and that's fine but the advantage of this is you're doing something that's replicable, can be turned to a certain frequency using the machinery and doesn't fatigue you at all and doesn't have to be stopped and uh, you can then switch it off get feedback notice where the information has moved and it typically moves as I said uh, 90% of patients will start off with a gut feeling that they may not know what it is it then moves up into their heart region and that will often be related to anxiety fear panic then they often feel a lump in their throat which is associated with the direct trauma and not being able to speak about it and then the golden sort of light bulb moment that you're looking for at the end of a 90 minute session is when everything's switched off is what have they learned about themselves what's the new meaning and that's given an opportunity for the blood flow that was activated away from their brain during the session to be reprofiled and redirected to the parts of their brain that are involved in processing emotions at a cognitive level and processing thoughts at a cognitive level as well. So you've got this almost a hierarchy of very raw emotions that are stored in a somatic level at a gut level. Then they become uh, slightly more refined and understood in terms of physiology and hyper arousal and dissociation. And finally, then you're t- starting to make sense of them in the brain, almost as if you're dreaming but awake. And that's what people in my sessions report to me. They start yawning, they start feeling really tired, they feel really exhausted. And it's as if they've had a brain workout because what they have actually had is a reprocessing and a re physically storing the information that was at the time of the trauma held in the body and how I like to explain it to people from the north is when the Titanic sailed off from Belfast in 1911 or 12 it was literally indestructible at thought they saw the, 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 the iceberg and they thought that's only easily sorted out but that was only 10% of what they could see 90% of the problem was stored under the water which I equate to the body's unconscious processing so what you can see and what you can remember and what you can talk about and what is often done in IAPTIN in CBT approaches is the 10% they know uh, already but it's not yet informed by the 90% that's somatically stored that hasn't been changed into a cognitive frame that they can add to and give meaning to and then help them understand why uh, this will really change because this body has held on to this information for their survival and they're not going to be able to let go of it and what I find in my sessions and I typically see people for five two-hour sessions one is the initial assessment of two hours and then four two-hour sessions after that and that's usually enough to get a lot of the trauma sorted out is that something will emerge in session two or three let's say that they've never ever even talked about or even been aware about before and that's because the unconscious information has been given permission to rise to the surface and you'll find that it's crucially important and I am always amazed that I will do what I think is a very in-depth history and right back from pre-birth really to their current day and all of the history in relation to any incidents of relevance and something will come up and I'll just give you an interesting example that I'd never heard of before. Last year I was working with this very um, 
nice guy who'd experienced a lot of trauma when he was working in the army. And we dealt with all of the army uh, trauma. And then he came back to me last year, about April, and said to me he'd just been admitted to hospital and sectioned under the Mental Health Act and wanted to come back to me. And uh, he suddenly told me that when he was 21, he was involved in a car crash and he was in a coma for a month and he wasn't expected to live. He had a tracheostomy. He was completely unconscious. And he'd never mentioned that information to me in the previous months, the year before that I had seen him, because it was unconscious. It was never actually stored in his memory. He'd no recollection of this information. And I was able to get a second-hand account of it. And what was really interesting was I often asked the person, what's the most traumatic aspect in terms of colour that relates to this? And it's usually black, but for him it was white. And what I equated this to was when he was being operated on and having the tracheostomy and all the surgeons were trying to save his life and he'd two punctured lungs. He was in the operating theatre with these bright white lights beaming down on him, but he'd no conscious awareness of that. But what he found soothing was the black light, which would reflect and equate to the induced coma that he was put in. So we did actually this 100% unconscious processing of a month of being in the hospital unconscious. And we had a combination of physical approaches through a friend of mine who's a physiotherapist who does neurostimulation, along with my advanced form of sensory motor EMDR. And he is totally transformed in terms of his pain relief, in terms of his self-esteem, in terms of his, uh, his whole life. And it's really putting the pieces of someone's life together like that in a way that they're not able to do themselves because they don't and can't stand back and really appreciate what they've been through, particularly if they've been, let's say, in ICU and unconscious. And that's a whole new area of interest now, looking at unconscious trauma when someone's been in a hospital after surgery, after uh, an operation, because then you're talking about a purely sensory motor trauma and only a sensory motor approach will um, uh, attempt and be successful at uh, stimulating enough information that can then enter a cognitive frame that you can then work with more traditionally. Mm. And, um, you mentioned earlier that someone can come away with a new meaning. Can that be true when uh, a trauma is purely sensory motor? Because I guess there might be an initial meaning. It's more a felt sense Um yeah, I'll give you an example of, of someone. Th that, that's a very, very good question. One of the first cases I worked with in this way was a man who was a juggernaut driver who was driving along when a car came out of nowhere into his pathway and he drove over the car and killed the occupant, had serious injuries himself and was left lying on the ground seeing this man with his arm on the road you know, dead. He couldn't get into a car. He had a hundred sessions of CBT over three years before he saw me. And the solicitor said, was there anything I could do with him? Because this man had no meaning in his life. He just wanted to die. And every time he was being asked to rehearse the story, it just made the situation worse. So I was very new to sensory motor psychotherapy at the time. So this is 2008, 2009. And I thought, well, let's see if I can recreate what he was doing at the time. So he's driving along, he's holding the tactile units, and then imagine that's the steering wheel. And I just observed his body, and I just said, I had a hypothesis, and just let me see if I can notice anything. And out of the blue, his foot 
moved onto the brake and shot out. And I just noticed this and I just asked him to open his eyes and just observe what had happened. And he was able to tell me that by putting his foot on the brake so suddenly, his whole life had come to a halt. But now that he'd realised that caused him to shoot up in the cabin of the um, juggernaut and fall out through the doors that had come off onto his back and he'd broken several vertebrae. He realised in that moment that he had done everything he could possibly do to save that person's life. And it turned out that the person who'd crashed into him was uh, fasting in Ramadan and probably fell asleep at the wheel and veered into his path. So the meaning for him was life-saving and literally that allowed him to get back to work, back driving, to allow him not to have this survivor guilt complex that he had had up to that time. It sounds kind of similar to how the AIP model in EMDR, so adaptive information processing, proposes that our brain is kind of inclined to try and process things to make sense of things um, but maybe an adaptive resolution, somewhat a positive resolution rather than being kind of caught in the trauma and seeing it from purely one perspective like it was my fault or um, I should have done something or I'm in danger. And so with, when you process things, kind of an, an alternative interpretation seems to emerge when it goes successfully. And that's kind of like what happened with this person. Yeah, I, I think you're right because the body is trying to make sense to the brain of what has happened. But when you get a trauma, the, the physical actions are cut off from cognitive awareness and the body is trying to complete those actions so the key point in trauma resolution is to get to the point where the physical action stopped and then what would you have liked to complete at that point and that sort of circuits uh, completes the circuit of information transfer and allows it to be adaptively informationally processed but you have to be creative and open to allowing that sort of reflex information come into the mind um I was going to ask you, Art, you know when you say that, uh, uh, well, a couple of questions around the sensations in the body. Why does it, you mentioned earlier that it starts at a gut level. Uh, why is that and why does it move to these other areas and what's the significance of these other areas, whether it's the chest, the throat, that, the, the head? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question and I under, wondered that myself. I think it comes from when we're children, uh, whenever there was something wrong with us, no matter what it was, we always said we had a pain in our tummy and it was diagnosed, diagnostically in the medical literature known as a, acute non-specific abdominal pain or ANSAP for short. So the kid says I've a pain in my tummy irrespective of what the cause of it is because that's where all the emotions are felt. So when you're processing information, it all goes back to the nine months in pregnancy when the mother's feelings and thoughts and emotions and sensations and physical reactions and any trauma and neglect she's felt herself are transmitted through the muscle wall and the umbilical cord to the baby through stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline in the amniotic fluid which then bathes the baby's brain and mind. So that's the first thing, that's our first form of in utero processing and that carries on in the sensory motor stage which is for the first two, three years of life. It's only then when you start crawling and you start talking and you start walking that those 
primitive reflexes and primitive gastric sort of processes become what are known as secondary processes, which are protective reflexes. And then it's from the age of three on that you start talking and making sense of the world. So um, essentially it follows our development as infants through crawling to walking to talking that we gain progressive um, acceleration of our ability to process information. But what's more crucial than that and what we recognise now is the gut microbiome has its own way of processing cognitions, emotions. And one of my uh, favourite lectures in Trinity when I studied medicine was Ted Dynan, who's from Cork, who works with um, Professor Crian in the uh, research laboratories in UCC. And they've worked on this field for the last 20 years. And their goal and sort of aim is to find out what foods can actually make a difference to someone's mood. But we do know that a lot of probiotics and a lot of good gut bacteria are implanted through the normal birth process. And that allows and matures at the age of two to put a platform for cognitive processing at a gastrointestinal level. So that then manifests later on. The key thing I like to relate people back to is that the first organ that uh, becomes active is at six to eight weeks, the heart. Then the gut and the brain start to develop at 10 weeks in utero and they start off together and 50% of the gut migrates to the abdomen as parenchymal tissue and gastrointestinal tissue with Meissner and Urbex plexus there and the other 50% stays in the gut and it's why tablets like antidepressants have a an impact on the gut in terms of nausea and vomiting and diarrhea because the serotonin receptors and the brain receptors are 50% in the gut and 50% in the brain so they're essentially the same form of processing but just in different locations but the heart has its own enteric system called the a cardiac nervous system different to the enteric system and different to the peripheral system so what you've got is a gut brain a heart brain and a head brain that all process slightly differently but are all linked and in my model the idea is to activate the gut information processing system along with the heart information processing system and the head system and get an integrative understanding uh, by the person of all of that and what I've found is 90% goes from the gut to the heart to the brain and in people who are on the autism spectrum it's my experience that 90% of them have the opposite way of processing mostly things cognitively and very little connection to their somatic sensations and their muscle reactions. So you have to build a bridge in them from the cognitive uh, over-emphasis and hyper-focus that they have to an awareness of what their body is doing. And I'm working over the years with a lot of ways to try and get that enhanced and it has to be done very creatively because these people have individual sort of processing maybe it's visual maybe they're sensitive in hearing so their sensory system of processing information is very different they're neurotypical and they don't process how uh, sorry they're atypical and that neurodiversity is reflected in a, a different uh, spectrum of how they process information and you need to tap into whatever their preferred form of information processing is and that's possible and the books that I've written and the papers that I have reported on and the work that I'm doing at the moment is giving people the interest and the knowledge to learn about these techniques and I'm 
putting on a two-day workshop on the 22nd and 28th of this month for therapists who are either CBT therapists or re-MDR therapists or sensory motor therapists so they can learn how to adapt these techniques for the most severe, most complex patients with complex trauma and dissociation and moral injury and are resistant to normal forms of therapy as it's currently treated uh, and uh, uh, taught at the moment. And where should people look if they wanted to find out more about that art? They can go on to our website, which is the elicentre.co.uk, or sorry, the elicentre.com, where it's to a charity looking victims of the troubles, and we're trying to raise money for that uh, charity, or my own website, which is artomalley.com, and they can book through the Eli Centre if they want to go along to that. We're just a little bit short in time, Art, but I wanted to throw one more question at you. and It was just around the concept of trauma, because I suppose that's what we're talking about a lot, and it's not necessarily specific to sensory motor, but um, just to kind of get your take on something, and I know it might be, uh, well, it's certainly something that you work with a lot, but, uh, you know, working from an EMDR approach and considering trauma as a significant factor in a lot of symptoms, I'm wondering what you think about how, how, how much of a, how pervasive trauma is among the general populace, you know, and in particular, how much we maybe don't realise how much it influences how we think, how we feel. Um, I, wonder if, I know it's quite a broad question, but I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I have, I have very strong thoughts on that. And I think it grows and stems from growing up in what's known as bandit country in South Armagh, where my town, my business, my parents were held at gunpoint. Our town was bombed over 40 times over the course of the Troubles. And essentially the whole of that population of the North has been traumatised either directly or vicariously, whether they know it or not. And they sought, and we all sought, to survive by not talking about it, not mentioning it, trying to get on with our lives. But it comes back to haunt you, and it comes back uh, despite of you, really. And I would say, all I would go so far as to say 99% of all so-called illnesses, be they physical or mental, are first created by the exposure you have to your environmental experiences on top of your genetic background, that sort of epigenetic mix. And trauma, in the sense that we understand it, is very pervasive. I've just read Man's, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and he was a psychiatrist working in Vienna, and then he was in the concentration camps. And you can imagine the suffering that he survived. But for him, it was about creating meaning beyond all, and the suffering being used as a sort of guiding principle for uh, a, a purpose and a meaning in life. And once the traumas are overcome, and the body wants to heal itself, only then can you move on with your life. And the three stages that Judith Herman talked about, which I still think exist today, are number one, stabilisation and making sure the person isn't drinking or on drugs or suicidal. Number two, it's coming to terms with the traumatic memories, which we can do. And number three, it's integrating those memories and moving on with your life and gaining purpose. And you need to know and have one of those stages complete before you can effectively move on to the next. But that is the general frame of reference of working that that I have 
principles that I have adopted and she has a lot of she's probably the father mother of the trauma field back in the 1990s um, and has written a book called Trauma and Recovery so um, I like to go back to the original authors of um, these discussions and I think what happened was there was a lot of interest in trauma and then it sort of got over medicalized particularly by the psychiatry training which I'd have to say has no or very little understanding of the impact of trauma and seeks to medicalize it. But now there's a, an increasing awareness that trauma is literally, uh, if it's not dealt with, is going to lead to all these other symptoms that will cause all other constellations of, of diagnoses to happen. So my view would be get the trauma treated, get it resolved so that the memory goes from being a traumatic one where it's visually in your in your facial visual field all the time and you can't get rid of it to one that you know has been processed and it's stored like any long-term memory and then see what uh, is underlying the symptoms that maybe needs a more direct typical medical approach. I'd be in agreement and I think it's interesting that you bring up Victor Frankl um and man's search for meaning and I guess a lot of his work is kind of an existentialist approach how do we find meaning in like something as hellish as a concentration camp and I guess it, it's an interesting point to uh, parallel what we're talking about because I think the that kind of approach like trying to find meaning and trying to persevere is extremely useful uh, it, it places a lot of emphasis on the individual so kind of get on with things isn't the right word but try and find meaning where you can and um, and I think there's a lot of utility to that, but I think when it comes to trauma, there's only so far you can do, there's only far, so far you can get with focusing on your values, making changes, having goals. I think this might take on at least that you have to try and come to terms, process those traumas to be able to let go of them. I think it's a bit of a yin-yang there. There's an element of the individual, what can you do yourself? And there's an element of, okay, where do I really need help with that? And that's where maybe seeing a trauma therapist is the and 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 if you have a trauma lens if if you imagine when you go into the clinic and you put on your trauma lens it completely transforms the relationship between the clinic in the clinic setting and i would say and i think it's probably been proved over and over again that 50 percent of the effectiveness of any therapy is the relationship that you build up between you and the person you're seeing and the trust that is established and the curiosity to find out what's beneath it all. And um, that's a very good starting point. But knowing and having a sense of the map of the territory that I've, I suppose, over the years learned through my neurology research and training as a doctor, I'd like to be able to give some of those uh, tips and knowledge to people that wouldn't necessarily have um, been exposed to it so that it can short circuit some of the the problems that they might find they're going over and over again without resolution. Mm, I do think that that's the way the wind is blowing now. There's been a bit of a change in the tide with how we make sense of things and that this has become a lot more part of um, common normal conversations, the idea of trauma and that traumas aren't always life or death situations they can be you know it's not what we experience but how we make sense of it it can be when you graze mm -hmm. your knee and and your mum doesn't uh tend to you or rejects you and exactly so, mm. uh, and I, I and when you're you there Arthur. sorry to interrupt and um, but that is all we have time for 
uh, today, Art. I really appreciate your, your input and uh, it's an extremely interesting approach, sensory motor focused uh, EMDR psychotherapy. Um, and yeah, thanks again for your time today. Well, I, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you today.